0: This is Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. In September of 2022, for a program called Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between New Hampshire Public Radio and the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, I got to step on stage with National Public Radio's legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Nina had just written a book about her experiences as a journalist, especially covering the Supreme Court and perhaps most importantly, forming a lifelong friendship with the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That book is called Dinners with Ruth. I want to share a part of that conversation with the Civics 101 audience because come on, how often do you get this close to someone who gets that close to the Supreme Court? So here I am with Nina Totenberg for Writers on a New England Stage. Thank you. And Nina, thank you so much for being here with us tonight.
1: It's really my pleasure, and I hope everybody gives to their local public radio station.
0: (laughs) Now, Nina, I know that when you first started covering the Supreme Court, it was not considered important enough to be your full-time job.
1: Well, when I first was assigned to cover the Supreme Court, in my earlier days, I had many other jobs, in print first, and then when NPR hired me, we had only one news program. And it was an hour and a half. It was all things considered in the evening. It started at five, not four. And uh, my beat was the Supreme Court, the Justice Department, the House and Senate Judiciary Committees, <laughs> any major sca- legal scandal that broke, uh, or, and, and live hearings that covered those kinds of things confirmation hearings, of course, and the intelligence community. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and I covered presidential and vice presidential campaigns a little bit also.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you made the conscious decision to carve out a space for yourself covering the Supreme Court. Can you talk about what that was like? You're, especially as a young journalist, a woman, a non-lawyer. How did you approach covering the Supreme Court?
1: Well, when I first got assigned to... Cover the court, I worked for the, the late great National Observer, which was a weekly publication uh, published by Dow Jones, which at the time also owned the Wall Street Journal. And it was a weekly, and that made it much, again, much easier in the sense that I had time to do research. And I would call anybody, anytime, anywhere to ask any question. There's one good thing about being young as a reporter. You're, you understand that if you're going to do anything, you just have to be willing to ask any question at all. And if it's a stupid question, so be it.
0: Speaking of questions, it's 1971. You are covering a case called Reed v. Reed, and you discover that someone named Ruth Bader Ginsburg had written a brief for the ACLU for this case that was supposed to go before the Supreme Court. And you see that this woman's number is right under her name at Rutgers University, and you call this professor up. She's a law professor at Rutgers. And that conversation is one that Ruth Bader Ginsburg would look back on and say, you know, that was our first conversation, and we have been dear friends ever since. What about that conversation compelled Ruth to look back and say that was the beginning of that dear friendship?
1: Well, we, it was the beginning, but we, we weren't dear friends yet. She probably thought, oh, this, this girl is asking me dumb questions. But she never treated any of my questions as dumb. And um, that day, I really didn't understand the, the point she was making in the brief that women were covered by the 14th Amendment guarantee to equal protection of the law because, after all, women didn't even have the vote when the 14th Amendment was enacted. And she spent an hour... Answering my questions and explaining to me what I needed to know, which basically boiled down to the Fourteenth Amendment covers all persons and women are
0: persons. <laughs> and, and you were compelled to continue to call her back over and over again. I know. Well, that...
1: anybody who has spent that kind of time with me, somebody was completely new on the beat. I and it was just the beginning of what became her battle and the the architecture that she wrought to build um, the fight for women's rights in the courts. So I understood that this was somebody I should be in touch with and talk to regularly. And eventually we met. We met at a very boring conference and it was so boring that we left and went shopping. (laughs) And... I don't remember anything about the shopping, but I do remember a lot about that afternoon. So it was a friendship that grew slowly. I mean, she lived in New York then, so I didn't see her very often, but eventually she moved to Washington when she was appointed to the Court of Appeals, and we became closer and closer friends over the years until the last couple of years of her life. We were incredibly close because she needed me at that point. There were earlier times when I needed her in my personal life. And she always stepped right up to the, the, to the plate. And so um, my husband and I stepped up to the plate for the last part of her life.
0: I'd love to talk a little bit about that. You, you've described Ruth as being consistently stoic and internal and in utmost control. And that it took you a very long time to find that you had, in fact, become intimate friends, friends who needed one another, what was it that led you to see that? When did you truly know how close you had become? That's a really
1: good question, and I'm not sure I can answer it fully. I do remember that when she turned 50, her husband made a a book of letters that he asked her friends to write to her. And I I was quite surprised he asked me because I didn't realize I was that much of a friend to her. And so when I was writing the book, I didn't have a copy of the letter and my impression always was that it was a really pretty stupid letter. but I called up her daughter and asked her if she had that book and she did and she sent me the letter and to my really great surprise it was a pretty good letter (laughs) but I did sign the letter for some unknown reason to me Um, maybe I thought she knew more than one Nina I signed it Nina Totenberg
0: (laughs) (laughs) and there's one piece of advice that Ruth passes on to you that I believe she received from her father-in-law, which was as she is considering becoming a lawyer herself, he says to her, essentially, if you can do it, you'll do it, and if you can't, you can't. And, and she, from there on out, would always ask herself, well, is this worth it? And if I answer yes, I will proceed and do it. And I wonder if you have applied that same piece of advice to your life.
1: I think so. You know, you do things that you have to in a, jo- in a job. Some things you're thrilled to be able to do and other things just go with the territory. And I don't think it, it's that different for a Supreme Court justice even. And that I, it's a very good piece of advice her father-in-law gave her. Her mother-in-law gave her even better advice, I think, on the day of their wedding. Her mother-in-law sat her down. By then, Ruth's mother was, had died quite a, a few years earlier. And she sat her down and she said, Ruth, I wanna give you the secret to a happy marriage and successful marriage. And Ruth said, what's that? And she said, it always pays to be a little deaf. <laughs> and Ruth always said that that was true on the court as well.
0: I, I love that one of your takes of the relationships on the Supreme Court is that it's a little bit like a marriage that's not doing so well, that if you decide to stay inside of it, you find a way to communicate even if you disagree.
1: Yes, I think that's, that's right. I don't know how well they're doing at the moment, um, but in my sense is they're doing less well than usual. And that goes not just because just liberals versus conservatives. I think the conservatives are not getting along all that well either because they have different ideas about how to interpret the Constitution, how to interpret statutes. They, they don't always agree about that. And what they, of course, would like is a lot of, they would like a place in the sun, each of them. And that means that things don't always go uh, Smoothly, I guess you would say.
0: (laughs) Now, I want to, sort of pivoting back to your career a little bit, you've got a lot of good journalism stories throughout this book, uh, including one in which you end up with a retaliatory FBI file because of a profile on Hoover. Um, But, you know, after telling what is a great anecdote and admittedly funny, you say, you know now this is funny to think back on but i i worked really hard in journalism i worked really hard in my career and i wonder in particular how that hard work ethic applied to reporting on a court which to so many people is obscure is as you call it the marble palace how did keeping your nose to the grindstone push your way through those doors
1: well, first of all, it was fascinating to me. I was nev- I've never been bored covering the Supreme Court. I'm occasionally bored reading legal briefs because they go on and on and on and on. But... The cases are not boring. And in fact, I sometimes have to say to myself, all right, you're going to have to skip that one. It's interesting to you, but it will not be interesting to most people, at least in the argument stage, maybe when it's decided. So you, you have to sort of triage what you're capable of writing about and what people are willing to pay attention to even. When I was younger, I, I was you know I was almost always uh, until I went to work at NPR the only woman every place I worked or one of two women and even when I was covering the court for NPR there were when I first started covering the court uh, there was one other woman eventually then she retired and um, there was you know Linda Greenhouse was the you know, covered the court quite a bit later than I started covering the court, but I was thrilled when she was there. Now there are just as many women covering the court as there are men, but that was not true for a very long time. And it was, and I wasn't a lawyer, so all I could do was work really hard to make sure I didn't embarrass myself and that I could earn something of a reputation for doing good work.
0: And now, this book is peppered with dinners. Dinners with Ruth, yes, but also dinners with your friends and dinners with justices. Who were my
1: friends, other justices. Who are your friends,
0: absolutely. But here's what I mean to say. What, What compelled you? What gave you the confidence? The first time you ever invited a Supreme Court justice over for dinner as a young reporter?
1: I have no idea. When I, when I went back and I thought about it, and I thought, who was the first justice I ever invited for dinner? And it was Lewis Powell, who was a very distinguished Southern gentleman in his 60s, um, maybe even a little older, but when I invited him to dinner, probably his 60s, and his wife, Jo. Probably it was because Joe had been so, nice to me and had treated me like, a, as they say in Guys and Dolls, a poison. And, um, and so for some ungodly reason, I called up Justice Powell and I asked if he and Joe would come for dinner. I was single. I was in my 20s. I, Um, I had a little house I had bought that was 13 feet wide. I had another invited another couple, and I can't remember who who it was. I made the dinner and served the dinner. And I don't, I mean, I'm amazed that they said yes, they came. And you would have thought that I was dining, you know, they were dining at Buckingham Palace the way they treated me. It was incredibly gracious of them. He, he was always very generous with his time. He, like other members of the court, were happy to eat lunch or dinner with me um, and not to talk about what they were doing at the time, but how they did it, how they ran their chambers, how they thought about things, how they approached them. I mean, I remember uh, a lunch I had with Justice Scalia, when he was first on the Supreme Court, I had known him for a good 10 years before that. And I said, so what's different? He'd been on the Court of Appeals. I said, so what's different from the Court of Appeals? And, and it was very interesting what he said was different. He said, well, there are a whole bunch of subjects that I have not given any thought to that don't come before the US Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Um, I've, never, I've never even thought about the 11th Amendment. Um, death penalty cases by and large don't come to the, to the court. And there were several other things and I, I, I just had never even thought about that. And, and he said, so I really have to think about them and think what I think for the first time. Of course, after a while, justices sort of know what they think about how to interpret this or that or the other thing, but situations change. In the early days when I covered the court, most of the cases were about civil rights and, and about the draft, actually. There were a lot of big cases about the draft. Um, those cases don't, those kinds of cases don't come up. There are different civil rights cases now, and there are all kinds of cases about now about, that people are just starting to think about in a different way about the First Amendment and technology and social media and the protections under the statutes. Subjects that the court deals with change over time, not just the personnel.
0: (laughs) You're listening to an edited version of my conversation with Nina Totenberg, NPR legal affairs correspondent and close friend of the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We'll get right back to it after this break. But first, there is so very much that does not make it into the average Civics 101 episode. Luckily, you don't have to miss any of it because our team puts it all together in the Civics 101 newsletter extra credit. You can subscribe at our website, civics101podcast.org. It's where all of the fun and or wildly tangential stuff goes that our executive producer, Rebecca Lavoie, rightfully makes us cut from our episodes. Again, don't miss it. It's really good stuff. It's one of my favorite parts of our job. Civics101podcast.org and subscribe to extra credit. We're back. And you're listening to a special episode of Civics 101. I'm sharing part of my conversation with NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg, recorded for a live event called Writers on a New England Stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And I asked Nina, essentially, what were conversations like with members of the court when she was not operating as a journalist?
1: I think that most of the members of the court lead relatively, relatively isolated lives. They don't call it you know, the ivory tower for nothing. And um, some more than others like social interaction and not just to talk about law but to have friends and to talk about music and theater and maybe what's going on in, in, in sports. I mean, all kinds of things like that. I guarantee you, Justice Ginsburg did not want to talk about sports, however.
0: <laughs> even though she was quite a sporting woman.
1: Oh yeah, she was very, she was quite the athlete. She was, you know, she golfed. She even went skydiving once. And, and, and Scalia said, he, I think it was in Italy someplace, and he said he saw her up there, this little bit of a thing, and he wondered how she was ever gonna get down.
0: I had no idea. I'm utterly terrified of skydiving. So
1: I, I would not even. It wasn't. It wasn't. Well, not skydiving. It was parasailing. It was worse. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I want to pivot for just a moment to an audience question here. In the early years at NPR, what was it like for you, for Koki, for Susan, and for Linda, working in a male-dominated newsroom?
1: It wasn't a male-dominated newsroom. It was a female dominated newsroom and i have and I have often said that the reason was that it was it was so different from any other place i 'd ever worked, and the reason was that they paid so little no man would take most of those jobs <laughs> and the, you know there, was a, there came a time when we were so um, relatively powerful within the structure of NPR, within the news structure, that some of the guys referred, Cokie, Linda, and I sat in a corner, and we managed to commission a ratty old couch from somewhere else and put it in there so that other women would come and we would talk if there was a, an issue, And they refer, and some of the men in the newsroom referred to it as the fallopian jungle. I always thought it was something of a compliment.
0: <laughs> so despite your dominance as women of this newsroom, you, you still regularly benefited from the, the support and the promotion of this sisterhood in mm-hmm. the same way that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg did from Justice O'Connor. Can you describe a bit what it was like to support one another, especially when sexism and misogyny were main stage in the workplace?
1: I never thought of it as misogyny. It was, but I never thought of it that way. I mean, because misogyny suggests you don't like women. Most of the men I knew liked women. They just didn't think that we should compete with them on an equal platform. Um, And most of the men I encountered in the early years of my life in Washington did not consider me or any other woman that I knew as a person to be reckoned with. They and they did that at their peril because they said very stupid things and we quoted them. <laughs> but also you know I mean you just had to deal with the fact that the sexism was, by today's standards, insane. I mean, nobody would dare, for the most part, do what members of Congress did, and you had to figure out a way to deal with it. So I would get catcalled in the speaker's lobby when I would walk through, and I would just ignore it. Or if sometimes I had a very good source, a senator who really was very helpful to me, and then one day I realized that he was pretty soon going to make a pass at me and I had to figure out a way to deal with it. And I said to him, "Oh, Senator, you remind me so much of my father."
0: <laughs> I read that and I thought I have to take a page out of this book. <laughs> yeah. And and can you, just, can you describe how, how you and, and Koki and Linda really did support one another? How you made sure that any attempt to keep women down was skirted by your efforts?
1: I remember at some point Mara Liasson was off on a fellowship. And, you know, she came to NPR and she was, in the beginning, she was a newscaster. And then I think she had just begun a little bit to cover Congress and I can't remember the chronology of this, but she goes off on this um, fellowship and she's in Europe and they post a White House correspondence job. And I knew she would apply for that job if she were there. But I didn't know where she was and I spent the better part of a day tracking her down in Germany and I said, they've just posted this job, they'll undoubtedly close it because you're gone for a couple of months they'll close it before you come back. You fax me, because this was the distilled it, you fax me your application, and I will take it to the Vice President for News, who was, of course, a man. Um, and that way, they couldn't just ignore her.
0: I know this is a question you have been asked many times. Many people prior to my conversation with you said, are you going to ask this question? How can you balance a close friendship with the Supreme Court Justice, of which you had a handful, uh, and fair and even reporting on the Supreme Court. I don't want to know the answer to that question. <laughs> I want to know is it possible to do the kind of reporting that you did without close intimate relationships with the individuals well, who you're reporting I'm not on? sure. I, I
1: think my reporting was overwhelmingly enriched by knowing um, a large number of Supreme Court justices and knowing them more than that Person sitting up on the bench, and um, I've always I, I, I get this. You know, Justice Ginsburg was definitely my closest friend and my longest friend. I I knew her actually longer than Cokie and Linda. But I had other friends on the court who I knew for for a long time before they were on the court. Some were more closer friends like Scalia. And others were lesser, so like Justice, then Chief Justice Rehnquist, who I knew in the Nixon administration. So I had lots of friends on the court, and I'm always interested that people ask me about my liberal friend, Justice Ginsburg, and they don't ask me, how could you be friends with Scalia? I could be friends with both of them, because they were both frankly rather lovable people on a personal basis, and knowing them as a reporter enriched what I did for a living, and knowing them on a personal level enriched my personal self.
0: Now I know you ask the question in your book, could a a Ruth Nino, as he's affectionately called, relationship happen today? Could a relationship between Scalia and yourself happen today? And what does the answer to that question tell us? What is your answer to that question?
1: I don't actually 100% know. I do have conservative friends um, who who are judges and a couple who are now or in the past have been justices. But um, I never have expected that I could be 100% objective. I don't think anybody can be objective. We all have personal opinions. But what we do is a trade. I mean, I know people would like to say, oh, journalism's a profession. It's also a trade and a craft. And part of that trade is to be fair. And if you write a piece, um, you really want to get all the basic viewpoints in. And if you don't do that, you're shortchanging your readers and listeners, and you're shortchanging yourself as a professional.
0: Now, an audience member asks if you know of any current cross-ideology friendships on the Supreme Court, anything like Ginsburg's and Scalia's.
1: No, I don't. But this is a pretty overall new court and I, I know that for example Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor actually have gone out of their way to try to build some sort of a personal bridge. They do that through, they both work on Justice O'Connor's it's called I Civics, which mm-hmm. is to promote civic education um, and I, I'm, I'm not sure how successful they've been beyond that but you gotta start somewhere. And I, this is a court that is certainly the most conservative court that I've ever covered, but it's also remarkable in a different way. It's, it's, it's probably the most conservative court in 90 years, but it is totally different from any court I've ever covered because it has no center. There always were one, two, or three justices who from time to time move to one side or another in ideological battles. And that is no longer true by and large. The Chief Justice very occasionally does not side with the other five conservatives to the extent that he doesn't wanna go as far as they do. But beyond that, there is no center. And that makes this a very different court.
0: And I wonder, with a court where you have justices whose homes are patrolled for fear of violence against their families, who are issuing decisions behind barricades, are relationships like those that you have had with members of the court possible today between journalists and Supreme Court justices? I guess we'll find out.
1: I mean, I do have some some members of the court who I think of as friends. They're not as close friends as I, I, the relationships are not as close as my relationship with Justice Ginsburg or Justice Scalia or Justice Powell or Justice Brennan for that matter. Uh, But they haven't been there that long. When Justice Stevens retired, I remembered covering his confirmation hearing. So I have been there a very long time, (laughs) so give me a little time.
0: Um, I do want to ask about a moment with Ruth. She had been in the hospital and she hadn't explained to you much about why she was there, what she was ill with. when she came out, she said, well, Nina, I didn't want you to feel trapped between your, your commitment to your, your job as a journalist and your friendship with her. Mm. And then you tell us that in the last 18 months of her life, you chose friendship. What did that mean practically for you?
1: What it meant was that my husband, David, was Justice Ginsburg's medical confidant. And I knew that they had confidential conversations. And I knew that I didn't actually even want to know what they were because I would be obligated to report them if I knew. Um, But for 18 months, I knew that her health was precarious. I, for a long time, thought she might, as she had so often before, um, be able to conquer cancer and live as long as she wanted to live, uh, which was definitely past the 2020 election. Um, And I guess in the last couple of months, I came to realize that was unlikely, although you could never be sure. I mean, we've all known people who we thought were gonna die very soon and they, they didn't. And the one thing I could see with my own eyes was that her brain power was the same. She was often frail, but her brain was not.
0: You describe a court greatly changed over the past 10 years and especially recently, and yet you affirm that like Ruth, you were optimistic. I wonder, do you feel that way today? Do you feel optimistic About the court, about the work that you'll be able to do reporting on it?
1: Well, I'll be able to do reporting on it unless I get deathly ill or somebody poisons me. Um, But for a time, anyway. uh, But I don't actually know what's going to happen to the court. I think it's a very perilous time for the court, and um, it has, at least for now, uh, lost a good deal of the faith that people had in it, um, due in large part to the abortion decision. And one decision is not going to end things for uh, the court's cachet, so to speak. But even a decision as important as the Dobbs case. But as I said, this is a court that is more conservative than any other court, I think, probably in 90 years. And that runs the gamut from um, social issues to technology issues to issues of um, some people say weaponizing even the First Amendment um, to issues involving regulation and all kinds of other things that uh, we don't have time to talk about tonight. And I think that the justices, as I said earlier, don't exactly love each other at the moment, and that it's a a very perilous time for the group of them as a court. And I don't know where it's going.
0: This has been an excerpt from my conversation with Nina Totenberg, legal affairs correspondent for NPR, longtime Supreme Court reporter and friend of the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who in part inspired Totenberg's 2022 book, Dinners with Ruth. This conversation was recorded live before an audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, for writers on a New England stage. A longer version of this conversation will be available at nhpr.org. And a big thank you to everyone who helped put that show together. The Music Hall Executive Director, Tina Sautel. New Hampshire Public Radio President and CEO, Jim Schachter. New Hampshire Public Radio Producer, Sarah Plourd. The Music Hall Production Manager, Jonna Morris. The Music Hall Live Sound and Recording Engineer, Ian Martin. Musical Director and Band, Bob, Lord, and Dreadnought. And the Music Hall Literary Producer, Brittany Wasson. This episode was produced by me, Hannah McCarthy. Nick Cappadice is my co-host. Christina Phillips is our senior producer, Jackie Fulton is our producer, and Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Producer, designer, and all around great things person Sarah Plord helped produce the show at the Music Hall. Music in this episode by Ketza. Writers on a New England stage is produced in partnership with the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and New Hampshire Public Radio, the production house of none other than Civics 101.